welcome to this edition of Maine the Way Life Could Be, a series in which we look at challenges and opportunities facing Maine in the lifetime of people alive today. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. In previous programs in this series, we looked at some of the possible effects of climate change on the way life could be in Maine in the not-too-distant future. Today, we look at some forces already at work climate change, as well as the recent rediscovery of so-called forever chemicals in Maine soil and water, and what these forces may mean for people who grow food, both as professional farmers and as backyard gardeners. We'll begin with a conversation with Sarah Alexander, the Executive Director of Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. She talked about the challenges farmers are already starting to face and what they are likely to see more of in the coming years due to climate change. We wanted to just start by asking what impacts are farmers in the state seeing now from climate change and what can they expect to see in their lifetimes in the not too distant future? Yeah, well, farmers in Maine are definitely already seeing the effects of climate change on the ground, and it looks different day to day, week to week, season to season. But just some examples from the last couple of seasons, two seasons ago, we had a historic drought. Almost every county in the state of Maine had a drought declaration, emergency declaration that that came into play from the federal government because of historic droughts in those areas. And then just one season later, we had historic rainfall in some of the months and in very specific bursts. So it wasn't, you know, an even rainfall over the whole month. It was, you know, the month of June had record 90 degree days, which were unusual for June and very little rainfall. And then the month of July rained almost every day for a bunch of people, right? And we had record rainfall. I think in southern Maine, July was the wettest on record in like 100 years, I think, something like that. So the management impacts of managing a production farm and, and of course, you're beholden to the weather and, and what's happening, the changes in that and, and how quickly and rapidly that's changing for farms is really, I think, critical for the farming community and how to come up with strategies for dealing with that. So for an example, I mean, those two, two things that I just talked about were water related, but one of the most critical things that farms are thinking about is water management and irrigation. So many farms in Maine do not have standard kind of irrigation as part of their their built-in infrastructure, but that is going to be something that probably most farms are going to need moving forward. And they're going to have to think about, you know, where that water is coming from. So drilling wells or extending water lines from, from other areas, from other water sources. So water management is going to become absolutely critical for farms in Maine, both to ensure that their crops have enough water, um, but then also from the soil management perspective of what do you do when you have too much water? <laughs> so what do you do when we get these historic rain events where it's going to dump, you know, five, six inches of water in a short period of time? And really the best way to address that is through soil health and to create healthy soil so that the soil can act as a sponge so that it can absorb that water that's coming through in short bursts and not have it just run off and take the the topsoil with it. So soil health 
management is going to be critically important for our farms moving forward. Of course, you know, MOFCA primarily is working with and advising folks that are using organic practices and those organic practices for organic certification are the same soil health practices that anybody can be using. And so really thinking about as a holistic food system in the state and within our farming community, how can we use things like the healthy soil programs that the state just um, implemented within the last year to really get more folks adopting those practices like cover cropping and rotation and leaving in, you know, crops for longer. So there's crop residue. So the the soil isn't bare, those sorts of things that are really going to help grow the soil over time so that all farms can better deal with those water events. I suppose there's blessings and curses mixed in with that in the sense that if people do try to take steps that are going to lessen the impact of drought and or overproduction of water, that in a sense, it's going to help them overall. Are there things that people are thinking about facing, maybe not just yet, that they don't have an answer for? Sure. There there are so many variables in farming, so many things that are out of farmers' control. But the other things that we think about with climate change are things like pests and diseases and invasives and which would bring new weeds, things like that. So as our climate is warming or our our zones are warming and changing here in terms of what we grow, we become more susceptible to plant diseases, for example, that may have primarily been in more Southern climates, may not have been as prevalent here, but are becoming more prevalent here over time or pests, right? That plant pests may be coming up more frequently uh, from Southern climates or may be able to overwinter here if we have, you know, milder winters, those sorts of things. Of course, there are management strategies for for dealing with pests, weeds, and diseases. But I think there's a little bit of chaos in the mix here (laughs) in the interim with climate change, which is that, okay, there are new things that maybe people didn't have to address before, but we can learn strategies from other areas. Um, But especially when we think about organic farming, you know, it's, it's farming in harmony with nature. It's farming with an ecosystem mindset. And so as our ecosystems are changing and are in flux and there's some chaos there and sort of new things that are being introduced or things that are are no longer there as they're moving into a new zone. You have to relearn in real time. Okay. What, what's the strategy that we need to adopt this year, you know, to deal with this new thing. Um, So farmers are always changing and adapting every season because every season is different. But I think the rate at which people may have to change and adapt to new pressures is going to accelerate. Is there any change yet that's noticeable in what people are growing, thinking that the climate has changed enough already that the types of crops need to change? Are there any that you predict will be sort of the first that can no longer be grown in the growing areas in the different zones that we have here in Maine? Well, we're not growing bananas yet. <laughs> so we, we haven't gotten that warm yet. But yeah, I think I think certainly season extension, that's long been a strategy here in Maine, but 
our season is getting longer. I think it was just the last season that the first hard frost for much of Southern and central Maine was in early November, which is pretty unheard of. So having a whole additional month of potential to grow could be both positive, but if you haven't planned for that, right. And if, if we didn't know that that was going to happen. So I think as if, if patterns kind of settle down and we can have consistency and know that we have a longer season here, I think it does open up new varieties. Um, it may, it may be the sort of silver lining, I guess, of climate change that we may be able to grow some, some warmer weather varieties here, or that we may be able to be more in active production for more months of the year. If our winters get a little shorter, we're able to have an earlier spring where the the ground is ready to work. Yeah, I think I think there will be some potential there in the future. I mean, our farmers have already done an incredible job of figuring out how to farm year round in Maine through season extension and high tunnels and, you know, all of the great things that our farmers use here and I know there's the ability even now to grow some warmer weather stuff, people have been experimenting with ginger and saffron and, and things that would never grow, you know, in the kind of standalone main climate, but in hoop houses. And I, I think there's just going to be more of that kind of experimentation, but it will be a lot of experimentation and, you know, we need consistency. Farmers need consistency to plant and the whole season gets planned out a year in advance, or some folks are on a you know, a five or a seven or a 10 year crop rotation. And so it may be hard to figure out how quickly climate change is going to shift things to be able to plan, you know, be able to plan for it, I guess. Some of the predictions about changes in temperature are pretty dramatic, even within our lifetimes, as we're saying. Do you think that's going to have an effect on crops that are considered quintessentially Maine, blueberries, potatoes. Is there is there talk or concern that heat is going to affect what can be grown in a really significant way? Yeah, well, I think the study just came out last year showing that blueberries could be one of the most impacted crops with the heat, with the rise in heat, that the, the heat in the fields in those areas where blueberries are being grown, you know, are showing uh, a faster rise in temperature than other areas. And it could limit what we have available to us, you know, those sorts of iconic crops. I think last year, you know, with the weird season that we had, the berries ripened earlier than usual and, and were bigger than usual because of all the rain that we had. But you could definitely see how if it was a drought year or different factors were at play it could mean a catastrophic loss for a blueberry season um, because of it's a short window kind of crop. So yeah, I think we will see threats to certainly main blueberries, I think are, are of concern as we think about climate change and particularly how those are managed and grown here. And, you know, there are people who are looking at strategies, right? Strategies for production and, and how to overcome that. But like I said, it's, climate change is definitely throwing a lot of uncertainty into systems and into the growing practices that have been utilized for centuries at this point. We've had a, a period in the last decade, for example, where there seemed to be an increase in the number of young people going into farming in Maine. I'm wondering, I saw the other day a story that the 
reduction in the number of acres up in Aroostook County being used for potato production has uh, dropped quite dramatically in the last 30 or 40 years, so that Maine, which was once number one in potato production in the country, is now number 10 in terms of states. I'm wondering whether you have come across or you have a sense of whether the projections of climate change are affecting how people are thinking about whether they might become farmers or if they already are, whether they're thinking about staying in it or whether they're thinking about, for example, reducing acreage that's available. One of the things that we're hearing about is, uh, well, you know, solar panels are great, but they're taking important agricultural land. So on the one hand, if we want to reduce carbon in the atmosphere, we're going to need more solar panels. On the other hand, if we want to be able to feed a growing population, not just in Maine, but in the country and in the world for that matter, we've got to have more acres producing. As the old curse goes, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's a both and, right? We have a lot of strategies on the table for dealing with climate change, and it's about political will, right? And a lot of terms in terms of our larger systemic issues. So when we think about solar panels, absolutely, we need solar panels, we need solar energy, we need we need all forms of, you know, viable alternative energies from fossil to get us off of fossil fuels. And those solar panels don't have to go on prime agricultural soils. They can go on rooftops. They can go in urban areas. They can go on less viable ground, something that's maybe not viable for agricultural production. So I think a lot of that comes down to regulation and how we prioritize, particularly as a state, although these are issues that the whole country needs to grapple with, but absolutely, we need to keep our prime agricultural lands open for agricultural production. That's going to be more critical than ever. And we've got plenty of space <laughs> to have solar be a robust part of our um, energy economy. And in terms of young people, you know, I think there are, there are positives to working in agriculture. Agriculture can be part of the solution for addressing climate change. And I think a lot of young people see that particularly organic methods that can build soil health, that can sequester carbon, right? That we can be part of the solution in um, helping sink some of the carbon that's in our atmosphere. And we need to feed people. We all need to eat. <laughs> and so wouldn't it be great if we were doing that from a local perspective and from a regional perspective, rather than you know shipping products all around the country and around the world, so we need more farmers everywhere. And MAFCA works diligently to support beginning farmers, anybody who's interested in farming. A lot of people have come to the state of Maine to take part in MAFCA's programs. And because of what Maine provides in terms of land access and land, land base. And when I look at the, the maps that have come out over the last couple of years that show how regional patterns are going to shift over time in the U.S. with climate change. Maine is one of the only areas on the map that's like bright green, that like, hey, we're going to have water and we're going to have a, a more temperate climate. And so I think 
as other folks around the country look at where does it make sense to grow food based on the available resources, water, and a climate that's going to be hospitable to growing food. I think Maine is definitely on the map, literally, for where it's going to be, you know, the best opportunity to continue to have viable, sustainable agricultural production. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity here for Maine farms and for us to retain our farmland and hopefully grow our farmland. The highest point of Maine's farmland was in the the 1850s and 1860s. And much of our farmland has that was being utilized back then has grown back over into forest land as we've lost farmers, you know, over the years through various waves and and reasons. And Maine does continue to lose farmers. I think we'll see that in the next agricultural census because we're also the oldest state in the nation. And, and, you know, even though the average age of farmers is going down as new farmers are getting into um, production here in Maine, we still have a lot of farmers that are ready to retire, that are ready to you know, move on to the, to another phase of their life. And so there's incredible opportunity here for folks that want to get into farming. And I think Maine is going to be a great place to farm in the future and, and be a part of that climate solution. Our conversation with Sarah focused mainly on farmers in Maine and the challenges that they're facing from climate change. But of course, lots of Mainers grow food for themselves and their families in their yards and in community gardens. And we wondered what advice professionals could offer to those folks. John Jemison is one such professional. He's a professor with a cooperative extension at the University of Maine, a soil scientist with decades of experience researching and growing many different types of plants here in Maine. We talked with him about his suggestions for backyard gardeners as climate change becomes more of a reality in our common Maine future. One of the things that we're interested in talking with you about is your thoughts on what the effects of climate change might be on folks here in Maine who are backyard gardeners, people who might be growing some plants for their own use. They like to grow their tomatoes or broccoli or whatever. I've been interested in this particular topic for quite a while. What I try to do, the first thing is try to assess with people, are you thinking about starting a garden and do you have a place set up in mind or are you a a fairly long time gardener? So if you already have your garden set up, then that's one thing to think about. And if you don't have a garden set up, then I think there are some things one can think about in terms of where you might want to place your garden with climate change kind of in mind. So, for example, everybody should be trying to sort of put their garden where they'll have the most sunshine because we know the importance of sunshine and photosynthesis and all of that. But more than that, can you position it in such a way that you get the best airflow through that? Because as we know, some of the things we're going to see and what we have been seeing is more intensive rain and longer periods of rain and then also longer periods without rain. If you're gonna be in a period where your plants are wet for a really long time, the more airflow through there, through your garden that you can get, the better off you'll be. So if you happen to have a fair amount of land to draw from and you have a nice south facing upland site, that would probably be the ideal place to put it because you're gonna get the best airflow through there. 
The other thing at that particular junction you can think about is if you're going to put in a garden, how are you going to do it? Are you going to make a nice square rectangular kind of garden and you're just going to go in and, and rototill it every spring and make rows and plant? Or, and in my mind, a much better program would be to make beds, design your garden so that you have some elevation and a place for water to drain to. Much of our area, our soils don't really often drain that particularly well in a lot of the coastal area and a lot of the uh, river valleys like the Penobscot River Valley. We have, tend to have some pretty poorly drained soils. And so if you're going to garden, first thing you have to figure out is if you have beds and you can get some elevation, then there's some place for the water to run and hopefully percolate on through. And the other benefit of that is that then you can keep track of what you've been growing in your garden in different places. And you can keep maps of it and say, oh, last year we grew tomatoes here. This year we'll grow a root crop here or we'll grow a leafy crop here. But that way you can help break up soil-borne diseases. And all of these plant pests, issues like diseases and insects, as we look ahead, it's not looking better in our future. So the more that we can do proactively in our gardens to rotate among families or among types of plants and keeping track of what you did, where you did it, and building that soil up, all of those things will help. If you're thinking about starting a garden, that would be my first recommendation. If you're in a garden right now and you have traditionally rototilled your garden every spring and planted in rows, at least consider now the possibility of moving to raised beds because it's just a really good policy. Then you don't have to really work your soils very much. You can turn them a little bit. You can add some compost to them. And over time, you'll build that soil organic matter up because the more organic matter you have, it just, it's like this big pantry for all of these nutrients to hold on to and makes your soil more fertile. There aren't too really very many magical things in life, but one of the magical things in life is that when you add organic matter to a soil, if it's a poorly drained soil, it makes it better. If you add organic matter to a very well-drained soil, it, it makes it better. It makes it hold on to water longer. It's kind of counterintuitive that one thing could help in get water through a system faster and hold on to it at the same time, but it does. And so the more we can hold on to the water we get through those dry periods, the less you'll have to irrigate, the less under stress your plants will be by building soil organic matter up, compost our kitchen scraps, our leaves in our yards and whatnot, and compost that and put that into our garden. And that's just not stuff that's going to the landfill and with methane going up into the atmosphere and causing more trouble. So every little thing that we can all do makes a little bit of difference. But if a lot of us do a little bit, it starts to make an impact. And that's important. You just mentioned it's really good to rotate different families and types of plants and so forth. Are we going to have more types of plants to be able to rotate as the climate changes? Or are we going to have less? That's a really good question, too. We will be tempted in our time to think that we can do more things and plant more different kinds of plants. And some years we might get away with it and some years we may not. So when you think about climate, I like to think about it as a bell-shaped curve 
what I think we're doing with our bell-shaped curve, if you can imagine Humpty Dumpty sitting on top of the bell-shaped curve, he's sort of flattening the top of that curve. We're not getting as much in the middle as we would expect, but we're gonna get more cold weather snaps, more hot weather snaps. The whole bell-shaped curve is it's ever so slightly shifting to a warmer direction. But you can't forget that we're gonna have those uh, wings out here, these weird events. Think about Texas a couple of winters ago when, and likewise, we're gonna have warmer and longer and spiky warm like we had a lot last summer. So the bottom line with that is, is if you wanna plant a peach tree, if you have a protected spot, go ahead and plant one. And what's the worst thing that happens? Your peach tree dies, right? Or you don't get peaches that year. And so if you had a peach tree, you may not get fruit this year, but you maybe get it, maybe it'll survive and make it into the next year. But I wouldn't expect us anytime soon, to, for instance, to be planting vinifera grapes and, and expecting them to be able to survive here. So we're not going to have a California type wine industry here or like what they have on Long Island anytime soon here, because we still look at these, we're still going to get cold snaps no matter. And I cannot imagine that we won't get in most years, at least 10 or 15 below zero in the Bangor area and, and Northern Maine is still gonna get some really spiky cold weather. So I don't think we can plant tremendously differently. You know, in fact, I'm telling my farmers, let's try to do less tillage, let's grow shorter season crops so they can get those fields cover cropped and protected and trying to do that with less tillage because you know we keep that carbon in the soil. It's a sink for it, that's good. So we want it to be is in the soil. And then keeping that field covered, if we have extended intensive fall rains, the plants have already gone in, they've, they've grown, they're established. They're gonna hold that soil in place. They're gonna suck up some of the nutrients that were still in the soil that otherwise would run off and go into our streams they'll stay in the field. And so I think our gardeners can begin to think about things in a similar way. When we grow in our community garden, for example, we will pick the beds that we can get into the soonest. We will plant those for leafy greens, things like spinach and kale and things that can survive early. And then we plant our onions and then we plant our broccoli and cabbages and those plants first. And then as we take those off, then we have to make a decision. Can we get another crop in in that bed this year or should we go ahead and cover crop it? So the leafy greens, we can usually get a second planting of something else and then cover crop it. But something like an onion that takes all, like a sweet onion that takes all, all season to grow, then as soon as we pull those, we, we cover crop those and try to do the same thing so that the cover crop will hold that soil in place in that bed, it'll suck up any extra nutrients that are still left behind. So those are some real good principles. Think about cover cropping as being as important a thing to do in your garden as almost anything else. So that when you're done with that season, everything's been covered up, it's happy, those plants will grow. As that cover crop grows, it exudes chemicals out of its roots into the soil and that feeds soil microbes in your soil. So they're happier, you have a more living soil. We hear that our growing season is probably two weeks longer than it was 30 years ago right now, and that it might get even longer as we go on. 
your suggestion is not to plant things that need a longer growing season, but to plant what we're doing now and and cover crop for the rest of the time? I, I like that approach personally, because you're managing your entire resource versus managing strictly for food. And to me, that's an important thing. I think knowing what's in your soil, taking a soil test, taking advantage of the university's soil testing lab, know what you got to do to your soil to make it right, and then protecting that over time and building that soil resource up is, to me, absolutely as important as trying to grow something that needs a really, really long season. Because you may get that and, and you may not. And if you've taken up a fair amount of space in your garden to grow one thing that you might have a 50-50 chance of actually getting a fair amount out of it, where are you, right? It is smart to grow as soon as you can. I have planted in Maine in the last 12 years. I have planted in March, a couple of raised beds in March, once on St. Patrick's Day um, in 2010 and 2012, and then in 2018, I think I did as well. So one can get in early. And if you want to try to do that, what's the worst that can happen? You've worked a bed, you know, you've sown your, your greens. If it makes it, it makes it. If it doesn't make it, you're out one little package of seeds. So push it on the early side if you want to. Just don't beat up your soil. If your soil's real wet, just leave it alone. But when that soil dries out and you can take a handful and squeeze it and pop it up in your hand and it breaks apart, then you're ready to go. Go ahead and try it. And, and yep, you've lost a, pack, a package of seeds and that might be four, four or five bucks, right? And if it snows or freezes, no big loss. But if you have taken up a big chunk of your garden to grow something like some people will try to grow sweet potatoes and some things that really take a long time. It takes a lot of input. Is that really worth it? Or would you rather just go buy some sweet potatoes either at a farmer's market here and that's grown around here or from somewhere else and then focus on your garden with things that we know grow well here and, and you can be really effective with it. Do you think there are going to be things that we have traditionally grown here that we won't be able to grow in, let's say, 20 years or something like that. I've heard, for example, there's some concern about blueberries, uh, mm -hmm. wild blueberries, for example. Uh, what, what's your thoughts about that, particularly as it might apply more to a little garden than a farm? I do have some concern that our maple production might be affected. I think blueberries could be affected. Most people are going to grow high bush blueberries in their yard, generally speaking. And I think those should do fairly well, particularly if you have a nice, well-drained place to put them and you can keep the soil nice and acidic the way they like it to be. Those would grow fine. I guess one of the other things that I would really encourage people to do is We've talked about the need for raised beds for drainage, and there's also a real need to make sure you have a good watering approach and a, an access to good water, whether you want to do that with drip irrigation, set up a little drip irrigation system in your garden that you can then you know, water the plants directly versus overhead irrigation or, or overhead sprinklers that then you wet the entire plant and sometimes that's an okay thing, and sometimes that's not an okay thing. 
And if you had a chance to drip irrigate, you're in a much better position than if you had to overhead irrigate in a garden. Learning how to, to accurately and effectively irrigate is a really important thing. We would typically ideally get a, an inch of rain a week in the state of Maine, generally speaking. And it's pretty evenly distributed across the year. And so we've been growing for two weeks and we have gotten a tenth of an inch of rain. We're going to start running out of water pretty quickly. So when do we irrigate? Do we irrigate in the morning? So it has plenty of time to dry out. We don't want to irrigate late in the day, leaving those plants wet overnight long because that then promotes disease. Yes, it's, you're going to have nights when you're going to rain outside and plants are going to be wet. So if you've had that for two or three days, make sure you're out there looking at your plants. Make sure you recognize a disease that's forming. If you see some fuzzy white stuff coming out of your bean plants, you probably have white mold. So you've got to get rid of that. Just cut it off, bag it up in plastic and get it out of your field. I think both being able to keep your plants from getting stressed, either from too much water or too little water, that's, a, that's an important thing. Spend time in your garden. You know, it, it's, a, it's a great place to be. You can learn, meet all kinds of new friends that you didn't know you had. These little riders of insects that like to hang out on your plants and they're not hurting anything or they might be helping because they might be uh, beneficial organisms and figuring out how to grow beneficial plants to attract the good, the good insects, keep your pest populations down. That's a really good thing to think about doing. That way you can catch something before it becomes a really big problem. One other thing about the climate change question is, you mentioned just now pests. Are we expecting that we might see pests that we haven't seen before who are moving up from more southern climes, for example? How do we think about that? I've seen diagrams that show the state of Maine under different climatic scenarios and that by like 2030, we're going to have the weather of Connecticut. And then in, by 2050, we're going to have the weather of New Jersey and that kind of thing. I don't know about you. If I really wanted to live in New Jersey, I would live in New Jersey. I like living in Maine. I wish we could prevent this. We can certainly expect that something that lives well in New Jersey today is probably going to live move up this way as it continues to warm. We get more storms that bring insects in that don't overwinter here. But if that happens to be the winter that we don't get those really cold snaps, then perhaps they can establish themselves and then start to have a life cycle here. I'm thinking about things like black cutworm, which is a bane in the existence of many home gardeners. You know, we don't typically think that black cutworm has been able to overwinter here. And it usually gets blown, the moths get blown in from the south and early summer, late spring storms that bring Gulf air up our way. And that carries the moths up and then they, they find us and then they lay their eggs. So one can expect that things like that will likely be able to eventually be able to overwinter. Other insect pests I, I think about are like spotted lantern flies. You know, they're, they're moving north. Brown marmorated stink bug. Uh, it's a fruit tree problem. It's moving north. I think we just need to keep ourselves educated. When you find insects that you don't know what they are and you, the quality of the image that you can get with a cell phone today is just amazing. And you can send that to people in extension. And they, if you want to know what something is, send it to your county. If that person doesn't know it, um, then the, they can forward it up to our insect diagnosticians. 
and identifiers. So taking advantage of what we have here is really helpful. So when we think about pests, think about trying to create the best conditions that we can. If, you, if you're growing plants that typically get really dense or thick and it blocks the airflow through it and you think that plant's gonna to get too wet, go ahead and trim, prune it up a little bit, improve the airflow. Mulching can really help using appropriate use of mulches in the garden can help reduce the amount of water you have to put into the garden when things begin to dry out because it will hold, it'll reduce the evaporative loss that's gonna happen in the garden. But when you put things in the garden, like a mulch, whether that be a straw mulch or whatever, that's also a habitat for some other pests sometimes to hide under there. And you can get things like mice and other insect slugs and things like that cool protected environment. So the more we go in and do stuff, the more we really should be out there watching what, what happens in our garden. And it really is a, it's a great place to be. For those who would like to find out more about the services that Cooperative Extension can offer small growers here in Maine, including more of John's suggestions for backyard gardeners, as well as ways to connect with your local county Cooperative Extension office, go online to extension.umaine.edu. Climate change isn't the only big challenge facing those who grow food in Maine. Recently, there's been a lot of attention focused on PFAS perfluoral alkyl and polyfluoral alkyl substances, a class of chemicals that are sometimes referred to as forever chemicals because they don't break down into other benign substances over time. As a result of the spreading of wastewater treatment plant sludge on farmland back in the 1980s and 90s here in Maine, these chemicals have recently been discovered in farmland and water, as well as in the crops grown on that farmland and even in the fish and animals that live off the land and water. We've heard everyone from Maine guides to government officials warning not to eat deer meat in some parts of the state and to limit consumption or avoid eating freshwater fish. We've asked Sarah Alexander, executive director of MOFCA, who we heard from earlier, what kind of effect the discovery of these PFAS chemicals is having on Maine farmers and on our local food system. PFAS chemicals, and they're actually thousands of them. So it's a whole class of chemicals that have long-term impacts for us because they have such a strong bond that basically they never break down. They, they don't break down very easily in nature and they bioaccumulate in us. They bioaccumulate in animals and fish and plants. When they're in the soil, you know, they stay in the soil, they don't break down, they leach into our waterways. So there, there could be many points of contact and, and possible ingestion with PFAS chemicals. So from a, a human perspective, it could be in our water. So this is why the Department of Environmental Protection is starting with water testing for home wells. It could be in our food. And this would be specifically from, from two sources, food that could be grown in contaminated soil and so that, or with contaminated water. So that food itself may have some amount of PFAS in it. And then also food packaging. A tremendous amount of food packaging contains PFAS and that can get directly in the food. So microwave popcorn is sort of one of the most well-known ones from there was a study done like 20 or so years ago about the chemicals in microwave popcorn and, and PFAS was one of those. And so 
anyway, the food packaging is another, another direct source. And then we're also getting these through daily <laughs> contact with all sorts of things. These chemicals are in personal care products. They're in our clothing. They're in outdoor gear, anything that's sort of water repellent, waterproof, Gore-Tex, anything that is stain resistant. So a lot of furniture, carpets, lots of things have used these chemicals. Our cookware, nonstick cookware, Teflon is sort of the most notorious PFAS. So, uh, so many consumer products over time have used some set of these PFAS chemicals and the oldest ones, PFOA, PFOA, and PFOS, PFOS, we know the most about those because those were sort of the oldest ones that a lot of industries have willingly pulled and, and said they would stop using them. But when they stopped using those, they just started using a whole bunch of other chemicals that were slightly different iterations of those. And so you know, in terms of bioaccumulation in our systems, because they're coming from all of these, you know, potentially all these different places, all of these different consumer products that we might be interacting with on a daily basis, even if, you know, we don't have particular water contamination and we're not eating food that's been grown in soil that has PFAS contamination, all of us have some amount of PFAS in our system because of this kind of ubiquitous nature of of these chemicals and the likelihood that we are encountering them every single day in some aspect of our life, even if we've tried our best to avoid them. There's some background level in all of us and a lot of research still needs to be done. I mean, this whole issue, there are more unknowns than knowns in many ways, but we do know that there are health impacts for people that have exposure to, to PFAS chemicals and some of that is even at lower levels. And so those things include kidney issues, liver issues, some forms of cancer, lower vaccine efficacy, some immune system issues. So there's a whole range of issues just on sort of the research that has been done so far, but much more research is needed to be done to know, you know, what are really the long-term impacts of this. And so how we got to where we're at today in Maine is that the paper industry was coating paper with PFAS. And um, in addition to all of these other uses that we see from all these other industries, and I should say, this is a national issue. This is not just a main issue. Many, many industries throughout the world have used these chemicals. And um, so this is a national and global issue, not just a main issue. But Maine happens to be looking at this um, because of In 2019, it became known that a dairy farm in southern Maine had a high level of contamination on their farm. That triggered a commission to look at, okay, how did this happen and what are the impacts for our larger food system? And so out of of that commission came the recommendation that uh, Maine should really look at where biosolids were spread throughout the state because biosolids in Maine sometimes contain industrial waste that came from industries, including uh, paper industry. And so there happened to be some paper, paper industry folks who were coating paper with PFAS for food packaging to make it grease or water resistant. And so when that industrial PFAS contaminated sludge was mixed with 
wastewater treatment facility sludge and then spread on farmland, that's how we end up with um, PFAS contamination mm -hmm. on farmland. Much of the spreading happened in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. There, it is still happening today, but at lower levels because the state has put some regulations in place that if something, um, this just happened within the last a couple of years, but if, if it tests over a certain level of PFAS contamination, it has to be landfilled instead of being allowed to be spread for biosolids. But there is still PFAS, you know, there are still PFAS levels in the biosolids that are being spread today. And those biosolids can go to be composted, which further concentrates the levels of PFAS in that compost. And so we, there's a bill in the legislature right now, LD 1911, hopefully it will be passed by the time your listeners might hear this, but um, would actually stop the spreading, the further spreading of any biosolids in Maine and any con contaminated compost that contains PFAS. And 95% of the biosolids in Maine already go into the landfill. So this would close the loophole on that remaining 5% and ensure that we're not further contaminating any of our agricultural soils or our, our waterways. So what's happening right now in Maine is that the DEP um, was mandated by the legislature to figure out the sites in Maine where biosolids were spread they have come up, they had to go back through all of these paper files from the last 40 years. So it took them a while to do that. But at the end of 2021, they released a map that has 700 sites for where permits were issued to be able to spread biosolids. So the map is not a perfect tool because all that it tells us is that a permit was issued. It doesn't necessarily indicate that biosolids were spread there or how much were spread, how many times, et cetera. So the DEP has divided up all 700 of those sites into four tiers, starting with what they consider to be the highest risk for PFAS contamination in tier one. And that includes 35 communities across the state of Maine, all of which have farms, um, but also many residences that are being tested. And so the Department of Environmental Protection here in the state has started the testing process in those 35 communities. They hope, I think, to get through tier one, maybe by the end of 2022 or sometime into 2023. Each site kind of can grow into a larger investigation as one site is found, then they have to test neighboring sites. So you can see how it could be a slow process to work through this. In the meantime, the work that MAFCA has been doing in coordination with Maine Farmland Trust and, and other agricultural service providers is for farms who don't want to wait if, if they are worried about if they were on the map or if there was prior spreading on their land. We have started a fund where they can get reimbursed for doing their own testing, for testing their water, their feed for their animals or their milk to see if there may be contamination there. If there's water contamination, that could be an indicator that there's soil contamination. So that's a good place to start. And also, obviously, water is one of the, the primary pathways for which if you're ingesting PFAS, if your water is contaminated, that's the source that you want to deal with immediately. And there actually are solutions for that. Carbon filtration is, is highly effective. The state will work to put a carbon filtration system in place for any homeowner 
who has a well that's contaminated and we'll work with them to manage that filtration system for as long as the state has resources to be able to do that. And so that's the first step is, you know, finding where the contamination is because just because a site is on the, the map doesn't mean that it's contaminated. And there certainly are, and we will find, I'm sure, sites that are not on the map that have contamination. Any farm can contact us to get the information on testing. We have a lot of resources on our website, mafka.org slash PFAS. P-F-A-S is kind of our landing page for all of our resources for farmers, gardeners, um, because this is also something that home gardeners need to be aware of in terms of what kind of compost you might be bringing in to your site, because there's plenty of um, compost out there from, you know, landscaping companies and that might end up at Lowe's or Home Depot or, you know, one of those kinds of places that may be compost that comes directly from biosolids. And so there is some information on our website about that. We're hoping to do more compost testing in the state this spring so that we can um, provide more information on that. But yeah, we, we work with all farms. They do not have to be certified organic. Any, but any farm who needs support around this issue or is interested in testing can reach out to us. We have all the information there on the website and the application process too for getting testing reimbursement for water, feed, or milk. If there is contamination somewhere, we do want to know about that. We want to address that. And we need to have a safety net in place for farmers who who are doing that testing so that when high test results come back, of course, we don't want those products. If there's a product that tests high for contamination, we don't want those products in the marketplace. We want them to be able to pull those market, those, those products or be able to do further testing to determine product safety but be able to stay in business. So MAFCA, in coordination with Maine Farmland Trust, has raised funds to create an emergency income replacement fund for farms that are dealing with PFAS contamination so that farms who, who do find high test results between when they get those test results back and they start working with DEP and the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry, or DACF, that they're able to have income replacement until they can get on a longer term program with DACF, which they're putting in place right now, a one year indemnification program for any any farms that have to pull products so that they can have one year to figure out, at least in the short term, one year to figure out um, what they're going to need to do to pivot their business. Now, there are paths forward. The good news, well, there's, <laughs> I guess this is the good news is that, um, there are crops that are less impacted by PFAS contamination. So for example, the, the, the way that it bioaccumulates is that it may accumulate more heavily in the parts of the plant that have photosynthesis. So the green, the leaves, the stems, that sort of thing, but less so in the fruit or the grain. So grain is relatively un, unimpacted or, or less impacted than other crops root vegetable crops, the root part of the plant is less impacted, potatoes, carrots, beets, but the green part of the plant, the greens, Mm. the leafy part of the plant may be more impacted and where more PFAS may be accumulating. So there are management strategies for dealing with this in livestock, 
there are definitely strategies. Um, animals are better at moving this through their system than humans are at this point. So once an animal has clean water and clean feed, like a dairy cow or a chicken, they can move the, the PFAS out of their system over a certain period of time. And there it, it's different for every animal, but we're learning more about that. And so much more research needs to be done on all of this. Like I said, there are more unknowns than knowns at this point. And the other thing, just in terms of the, the food safety perspective, is that there are no federal standards for this. This is not something that the FDA has created federal standards for. The EPA is just in the very first phases of declaring two, those two oldest PFAS contaminants uh, chemicals, hazardous substances, which will give them authority once they are designated as hazardous substances to use some of the other laws that EPA has to clean up, to force the cleanup of those chemicals. So there, there's very little support at this moment from the federal level. Maine is out ahead of any other state in terms of testing and addressing this issue. So Maine is coming up with its own food safety standards for certain crops, but they have to go crop by crop. And it's a very slow process to work through that. And so farms that have been impacted so far at this point, we have nine farms that have been impacted. You know, they are leaders in this. They are pulling their products and figuring out how to do additional testing and working with the state to figure out where food safety thresholds are. But there's so much more to be done you know, I think that the outcome of this is that Maine is going to have the safest food system in the country because we're the only ones who are addressing this in a proactive manner right now. But in the short term, you know, it is going to be difficult for farms to navigate this and they need all the support that we can give them. It is no farmer's fault that this is happening. Not a single farmer knew anything about this. I mean, you know, most of the farms that are dealing with this right now were not the landowners when this stuff was spread decades ago. But even, even if there is still a landowner that had spread this previously, they were told that this was perfectly safe by the state. They were told that this was a great source of fertility and, and it was really sold to them in a way of, of like how wonderful this is and you should really use it, right? I've, I've heard stories of essentially people peddling the stuff and just out there talking about how wonderful it is and selling it to farmers as, as the next best thing. So no farmer and, you know, is at fault here uh, in any sense. And we have a lot to do to make sure that no farmer is going to go out of business because of this. And we need more farmers in Maine. Uh, we do have a lot of opportunity in Maine to expand our farming here in the state the, you know, this does not impact every farm. There are many farms who will not be impacted by this at all, but the farms who are impacted need critical support from the state for a farmer safety net to ensure that they're going to be able to have income replacement, help pivot their farm to different production model that's going to work for them if needed. And if the farm is at the point where it's contaminated to the level of food really not you know, being grown there, the farm is going to need a buyout so that they can move to a new location and start over with a clean farm. And there's, there could be a really nice match here with solar as well. These farms that are contaminated and can't be farmed any longer, if, the, if we do find that some of them are contaminated to that level, 
that's a perfect spot for solar installation for 30 years, which will give us an opportunity to do more research over the next 30 years on PFAS remediation. And hopefully by the time that solar leases up, you know, maybe there's a solution for, for dealing with this issue. So I think there, there's the resilience of Mainers will come through strong here and dealing with this issue with our farms. Our food safe system is going to be the safest in the country. It already is because we're addressing this issue in a way that nobody else is. And this is a national issue. So people will be looking to us and, and what we did when they try to solve this in their own communities and their own systems. And, and hopefully we've got a great story to tell them about how we came through this with a, a better food system in place and all of our farmers having even more successful businesses on the other side of it. There's a lot going on about PFAS right now, and it'll be a while before we have a more complete picture of the effects of PFAS on our farms and our food system. But changes are underway. One example of recent actions is the bill that Sarah mentioned, LD-1911, an act to prohibit the contamination of clean soils with so-called forever chemicals. That bill recently became law in Maine. It would stop further spreading of any biosolids in Maine. To learn more about the health risks associated with PFAS chemicals, be sure to check the WERU archives for the Healthy Options show from April 6th entitled The Serious Problems of PFAS Forever Chemicals. Host Rhonda Feynman's guest was Patrick McRoy, Deputy Director of Defend Our Health. It's a public health organization based in Portland that's been working on the issue. There are also good resources for learning more about PFAS chemicals on the University of Maine Cooperative Extension website and on the website of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. We'll put links for all the sites we've mentioned today on the page for today's program in the public affairs archives at www.weru.org, where you can also find all of the programs in this series archived for streaming anytime that you would like to listen. On our next program in the series, which will broadcast on June 7th at 4 p.m., we'll be taking a look at the biggest issues and opportunities associated with water in Maine, from battles with corporations over drinking water rights to the effects of sea level rise on our coastal wastewater processing facilities to the economic effects on Maine's fisheries. And we want to hear from you. What do you think are the biggest concerns and opportunities related to water that Maine will face in your lifetime? Please go to weru.org and record a brief message right there on the main page of the website or send us an email at thewaylifecouldbe at weru.org. That's thewaylifecouldbe at weru.org. We may use your comments on the air, so be sure to include your name and town if you'd like us to use that. That's it for today's program. Our thanks to the Maine Arts Commission, which has provided support for this series. And thanks to you for joining us for this program in our series, Maine the Way Life Could Be. Join us again on June 7th at 4 p.m.